As coaches, we love to talk about toughness. We want tough players. And we probably have a pretty good vision of what toughness looks like for our players. But do we know what toughness looks like for us as coaches? When I reflect on my own coaching, or even when I just turn on the television, I see a lot of moments where we as coaches, we lack that very same toughness we preach to our players. Back in 2019, ESPN college basketball analyst Jay Billis wrote an article titled, How Does One Define Toughness in Basketball? Now in the article, he goes on to share what he believed toughness looked like in a basketball player, though it applies to all athletes. And the article was so popular, not only did coaches all around the country share it with their players, but it led to a much longer form article titled Toughness and eventually a New York Times bestselling book that shared the lessons that Jay Billis learned as a former All-American at Duke, a lawyer, and even an ESPN analyst uh, for the game of basketball. Now, as coaches, we appreciate two things, both of which Billis articulates well. First, he addresses this misconception that many athletes have about what it means to be tough. And his assessment is spot on. At one point he says, I would watch games and see player upon player thumping his chest after a routine play, angrily taunting an opponent after a block shot, getting into a shouting match with an opposing player or squaring up nose to nose as if a fight might ensue. I see players jawing at each other, trying to intimidate other players. What a waste of time. That is nothing more than fake toughness and it has no real value." End quote. Second, he outlines very specific behaviors that he believes a truly tough player will demonstrate. Behaviors that would never make the ESPN top 10 plays of the week. These are things like talking on defense, taking a charge, or showing strength in your body language. Like many coaches across the world, I shared that message, uh, Billis's message with my team in an effort to get them to play harder. And I know it probably had a, an impact on, on some players, including my own players. But what impact did it have on us as coaches? I mean, many of the tough behaviors that Billis outlined are player specific, but others can be applied to us as well. The problem is when it comes to our own behavior, we far too often seem exempt from the standards that we hold our players to. As a coach, I've gone minutes without focusing on the current play because I'm too caught up in my anger at a bad call by the referee. I've wasted entire timeouts and half times complaining about what just happened instead of moving forward and what we can do moving forward. I've thrown my jacket, I've thrown clipboards, markers, towels and frustrations over missed shots, turnovers, or just mistakes by my players on the court. And I've motivated through anger and fear by demeaning and harshly criticizing my players or, or my team. I often lived by that saying, do as I say and not as I do. And you know what? It's an absolute garbage way to lead. John Wooden said it best. Your own personal example is one of the most powerful leadership tools you possess. Put it to good use. Be what you want your team to become, end quote. Now, in today's episode of the Coaching Culture Podcast with myself, J.P. Nurbin, and my co-host, Nate Sanderson, we're going to talk about what we believe true, tough coaching is. I actually wrote an article a few years ago that was kind of a spinoff on Jay Billis's article. We'll include a link to that article in the coaching notes this episode of the podcast. Now, you might be asking, where do I get 
these very detailed and organized coaching notes to the podcast. Well, there is a link in the details of this episode, or you can head on over to thriveonchallenge.com and subscribe to the weekly newsletter there. Also at thriveonchallenge.com, you can check out some of my online courses, which are really great ways to learn how to implement three of my favorite culture systems, the competitive cauldron, the captain's council, and the playing time system. Now, enough about that. Nate, why don't you get us started? JP, I want to start our conversation this week about the label of being the tough coach. I just finished watching the movie Whiplash for the first time. And if you haven't seen that movie, it's it's an incredible story uh, about a music teacher and a drummer and musician. And the music teacher certainly would be described as a tough coach. He is abusive. He's abrasive. He's direct. He's angry. He's a yeller. He throws things way over the top, way beyond anything that we could do in the gym today. But certainly people would look at that and say, well, he was a tough coach and believed that his toughness is what brought out the best in his musicians. But as you watch the story, and if we think about that label as it applies to coaching, I think there's a difference between being a tough coach, a disciplinarian with high standards, and being tough to play for. And as you go through the story in the movie Whiplash, it's very clear by the end that what this music instructor created was an environment that was incredibly difficult to function in. He, he was tough, but really made it tough to play for him. And as we start to think about what does it mean to be a, a tough coach, I think it goes beyond doing things that are um, reactive and easy for us when it comes to our behavior that make it hard for players and thinking about what are the hard things that coaches need to do to be considered tough for the best benefit of their players and teams. Yeah, no, Nate, I love that movie, and it is a great example. I think a through my coaching journey, made a shift where I actually kind of took pride in being tough to play for, you know, and, and being that, that hard, hard coach. Through my kind of coaching career, I kind of had this realization that I actually wanted my players to enjoy playing for me. Like, I didn't want them to dread showing up to practice or dread interactions with me. The same time, I still wanted to be tough. I wanted them to describe the experience as tough, as challenging. You know, and, and that's, there's such a misconception. We've talked about it before around transformational coaching where we say, oh, it's soft coaching. You know, we're not you know, demanding. We are. You can be really demanding. You can be tough. But what we're really talking about here at the core is moving from a place where we are really reactive as a coach. We just coach from our personality to moving to a place where we are intentional, where and we are still authentic to our, and I'm a very passionate, fiery person, but I'm still authentic to who I am. But I start to move to a place uh, of being more intentional and, and responding in better ways as a coach. JP, we've got four categories that we want to talk about today, four characteristics of tough coaches. And before we get into each one, I want to talk about what's easy. Our first category here is the idea of taking ownership or responsibility. And what's easy for coaches is to always find a reason why something didn't work that has nothing to do with you. In other words, if you lose a game or you lose the league or you have a bad practice or your summer workouts didn't have any energy, it's easy to look and say, 
well, it's because my players were tired or I don't have great team leadership or the officials cost us the game here or the student section got in our kids' heads or it's easy for us to complain. It's easy for us to blame. It's really hard for us to admit our own mistakes and take responsibility when things don't go the way we want them to go. I had a coach in high school who was very tough to play for. So when I actually was playing at the University of South Carolina, I still remember to this day, I was playing for Dave Odom, and it was my first game that I got to dress as a walk-on, and we were playing University of Pittsburgh at home, Saturday afternoon, on CBS with like Greg Gumbel like on the sideline, right? I mean, it's just this dream come true, and I'm in there. It's a great game. Pitt's ranked, you know, number three in the country, and we play out of our skin until the end, and we kind of blow it and lose the lead and, and lose by a couple points. And I'm like thinking, man, we are going to get ripped right now. Like Coach Odom's going to come in there, and he's like, because that's my experience, right? So I'm in, expecting that. Instead, you know, he comes into the, to the locker room, just real calm, real, real slow. And then he says, you know what, fellas? We battled hard today. And on that one, on the, at the end, that, that's on me. I didn't prepare you enough for that moment. And I'm like, whoa, you know, like, but for me, like he took ownership that for whatever reason, he hadn't felt like he prepared us to perform late in the, in the, in that, late in the game. And honestly, there was a lot of other things that our players could have been blamed for, but that just were, you know, really bad uh, mistakes, turnovers, a lack of effort late in the game. But he decided, since he's the leader, that he would take ownership of it. Now, the next day, <laughs> we came out there and we worked hard and he worked to make you know, the corrections. But that was just a really powerful moment for me. And it was the first time, really, you know, as, as a teenager, I had seen someone take ownership like that as a leader. And I think at the end of the day, like us taking ownership, uh, us accepting responsibility, that's tough, right? That's really hard to do. This is so important for us because first off, if we want our players to take ownership and responsibility for their mistakes, for their lack of effort, for whatever they fail at, then we have to model that ownership. That, that's just so critical. And secondly, I'm not going to get any better as a program, as a team, as a culture, if I'm continuously blaming and even more importantly, I'm not going to get better as a coach if I don't step in and start taking ownership for how I impact and influence. And we are the number one influencer in our team's culture. What you just described there reminds me of a clip from NFL Films back in the late 2000s. I think it was 2009. The Patriots had just lost in the divisional round to the Baltimore Ravens. And there's this clip of Belichick standing next to Brady on the sideline. And Belichick is mic'd up and he, he's just shaking his head. And it's at the end of the game. And Brady just looks dejected. And, and Belichick says, I just don't know how to coach this team to get us where we need to be. And I just think about how he has framed the team's failure in that moment. Starts with I. You know, and if you're looking for, well, am I tough or am I soft? Am I doing this the way JP describes here? If your first inclination is they don't know how to play in big games, that's blaming, it's deflecting, right? It's complaining, not taking ownership. Even if you say we don't know how to play in big games, that at least implies that, you know, I'm part of this group that doesn't know what they're doing. 
But I just love Belichick personalizing the failure and saying, I don't know how to coach this team the way they need to be coached to play at the level that we need to play at. It's just a powerful way of framing um, and taking ownership when things aren't going well. Here's the other reason why ownership and taking responsibility is so important is because it unlocks a growth mindset. The natural follow-up to, I don't know how to coach this team the way we need to be coached, is how should I be coaching this team differently or better to get us where we need to be? And so when you start asking questions like that, that starts to open up your mind, right? It opens up your curiosity to, are there better ways of doing what we're doing so that we can get better results? And all of that comes from embracing this growth mindset. Sometimes easier for coaches than trying to find a better way is just looking back and saying, well, this has been successful for me in the past. When we had Sean Mitzka on the podcast about a year ago talking about his work with NFL teams, he said the biggest obstacle to trying to open their eyes to new ways of doing their training and their practices was that they'd been successful in the past doing what they've been doing. And so that success in some ways sort of trapped them in this fixed mindset of this is the way we've always done it, or this is just who I am. And when you start to default to those kind of rationales and those kind of explanations for what you're doing, it becomes very hard to grow and to improve your practice. And it kind of comes back to that question that James Clear asked, you know, two or three years ago on the podcast, which was, is the way that I'm currently coaching, is it the best way? And, and for me, the answer is no, I can always do things better. There's always a better way. I can always improve. And we have to have that type of mentality if we're a tough coach. And, and a tough coach, and part of that process is we're getting coaching. We're getting feedback. You know, if we expect our players to be tough and take coaching, then who is coaching us? And sometimes that could be from our staff. Sometimes that could be from a mentor, bringing somebody from the outside. And sometimes, yes, it could be even asking our players for feedback. And then it's about embracing that criticism. That's hard to do because it requires us to leave our ego at the door and say, I could be better. But once again, if we're that type of tough coach, it's going to impact our players. It's going to be the example that we want. If we want them to be coachable, there's no better way to help de develop that skill than for us to demonstrate that ability to be coachable. You know, JP, that reminds me of an interview I listened to from Matt Campbell, the head football coach at Iowa State University. And when the pandemic struck last spring, his staff took a really interesting approach to their newfound free time. Now, Campbell had just been uh, awarded Big 12 Coach of the Year two of the last three years. Iowa State had been to bowl games. They'd won a bowl game. And what he asked his staff, and he went through and did interviews with the players and with the staff and really just did a thorough examination of every aspect of the program, asking the question, is what we have done to get to this point good enough to get us to the next point that we want to go to? And just asking that question of vulnerability with his players and with his coaching staff is tough. It's tough to open yourself up to that kind of feedback and recognize that even though we've been doing all these things to get to this level, that may not be enough. So what do we need to do better to, to move on? The things that Campbell said in that interview is that it's easy to rest on your laurels. 
it's hard to strive for improvement. Brings us to our third characteristic here of tough coaches, and that is they are intentional. And when we talk about being intentional, we're not talking about practice planning necessarily or coming up with some great pregame speeches or great game plans or systems or strategies. What we're talking about here is really communication. It's being intentional about how we communicate because, JP, as you and I know, the easy thing to do is to really communicate from a place of emotional reactivity, which often comes from a place of volatility, right? Like we can watch a bad practice and we can lash out at the team and we can chew on them and we can, you know, get after them with our our tone of voice and with our words and we can be angry. And that's easy, right? It's easy to coach from that place. But is that what's best for the team? That's an entirely different question. So often as coaches, we use the word authenticity. I'm authentic in this moment and this is just who I am. Or we claim that we can't change that. I heard that from my high school coach who was tough to play for. He used to say, I'm sorry, I just can't change. This is just who I am. And that sets a horrible example (laughs) for when our players are too emotional and they're frustrated and they talk back to the referees and they get red cards or technicals or they're creating penalties. Well, this is just who I am, coach. So we have to be intentional. And so intentional coaches know that our communication, first off, 7% of it, as the research says, is what we say. But there's 38% is our tone and 55% is our body language. The 7, 38, 55 rule is what they call it. So we're not just focused on what we're saying. We're focused on how we're saying it and with what our body language is and that, what that's communicating. So that's a really, really you know, when, uh, important piece when we're giving our players feedback, when we're giving players criticism. It's kind of a way that this kind of importance of intentionality ties into our earlier point of ownership. And I think so often we think, well, I intended for this to be the message to my player. But what matters not is what we intend for them to hear, it's what they actually hear. So often I was told as a player, I coach you this way because I care about you, because I love you, because I want you to be a better man. But the thing is, that's not what I heard. JP, what's really tough to do, it's really hard to say what your team needs to hear, when they need to hear it, in a way they can receive it regardless of how you feel. When your communication is dictated by what your team needs, delivered at the right time according to when they can receive it, not when you want to say it, and in a way, just as you described there, that allows them to receive the message, it might be calm when you want to be angry. It might need to be angry when you feel calm, but it's all dictated by the needs of your team. That's really tough. That's what tough coaches do. Brings us to our fourth characteristic of tough coaches, which is so important. Like it's one thing to be intentional as a coach, but there's going to be certain circumstances, whether it be the scoreboard, our our team's performance, there's going to be a lot of different circumstances that are going to test us. They're going to test that intentionality. And that's when we have to be in control, in control of our emotions, focused and concentrated on the next play. But so often we as coaches don't do that. Like the thing that I have done 
so many times as a coach, and I see every time I turn on the television and watch a watch a basketball game practically is a coach that decides they're going to rip into their players during a timeout. And the players at timeouts being called in basketball, everybody runs over, and the coach spends the entire timeout talking about the last play. But then that same coach, minutes later, is telling his players, next play, next play, focus on the next play, put the mistakes behind you. But they just wasted the entire timeout ripping the players. We've done that at half times. We've done that in the middle of practice. You know, when things aren't going well in practice, we just rip into them there. And the thing is, that's easy because a lot of us as coaches do it. It's a lot more challenging for us to control our emotions, to focus on the process, not let the scoreboard dictate how we respond, not let our players play dictate how we respond in those moments as well. Well, along those same lines, if you read Jay Billis's article, he talks about toughness and the ability to concentrate on the next play. And, you know, one of the things that we talk with our players about is after a mistake has been made, the ball goes out of bounds. There's a seven second, you know, period there where it's a dead ball in basketball. And we challenge our leaders with what can you do or say in those seven seconds that will help us on the next play, right? And I think that's a pretty valuable challenge for coaches as well. If you have a 30 second timeout or a 60 second timeout, Again, it's easy to rant and be reactive to what just happened. It's a lot harder to think and get in the mindset of and be disciplined to say what needs to be said to make us better for what happens next. But again, these are the things that tough coaches are able to do. And when mistakes happen, the first seven seconds after that mistake happens, how we respond as the coach is probably one of the biggest determining factors and how our players and our team will respond. They're all watching us so often. I remember coaching culture episode number five, first guest I ever had was Mike Neighbors. And he says on that episode, I realized I was a results coach and not a, a, a process coach when I started to observe my own behavior on the sideline. I was reacting to the scoreboard. Like, I remember him saying that. That's just such a great thing. Like, if our reactions, if our body language, if our tone of voice is changing based upon the scoreboard or based upon players making mistakes or not, then we're a results-focused coach, you know? And when we're a results-focused coach, we're allowing the results, things outside of our control to determine our emotions. And JP, as we kind of wrap up here, I think the root of what makes a coach tough is that they are basing their decision-making and their communication on what their players and what their team needs first, right? It's understanding their needs in the moment, in practice, in the huddle, in the locker room at halftime or after the game. It's making the best decision for your team, what's going to move them forward, regardless of how you feel in the moment, regardless of what the scoreboard may have said in approval or disapproval at the end of the game. It really comes down to understanding the needs of your players and your team and being willing to say, I want whatever is best for those that I serve, because ultimately that that's our job, right? Is we are serving the people that play for us, both athletically and as individuals and as people. And I think when we're motivated and driven by those questions and we approach it with that servant leader mentality. That's really the common thread that can help us to become tougher coaches. 
So a few of the coaches I support, they don't share the same struggles with fake toughness or a lack of emotional control like I did for a lot of my coaching career, but they do have staff members. And we did talk a couple episodes ago about how to develop our staff. It might be worth sharing this episode and then having a discussion about where in those four areas of ownership, growth mindset, intentionality, and self-control, you feel the biggest area for growth in your own coaching. Just an idea. In the meantime, Nate and I, we might work on an episode around tough parenting that you could passive aggressively share with some of the challenging parents of your athletes who struggle in this area as well. Thanks so much for listening to the Coaching Culture Podcast. Please share it. That's the number one way you can support this podcast is share with others. And the next best way is to just take 15 to 30 seconds to leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts.